Let's sing and you may be seated. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter number 6. I got a note from someone today that said, it's a bit confusing on that messaging app. You say sermon number 7 in Romans chapter 6, but I, I, took, I told you why. Chapter 1 I divided into two, and so we're always going to be one sermon number ahead of the chapter that we're in. So forgive me. I also told John that uh, I don't think I'm going to follow my notes at all tonight. I didn't say it quite like that. I just said, I, I will tell you when I'm going to the next point. The main points are, are set. I teach these so many times. Um, it's not that different things are important. It's how do you distill down the things that are pertinent uh, to deal with and to address and to convey so that we understand the totality of the chapter. Because you really could spend probably three sermons in this one chapter uh, dealing with all the many things that we find in it. We're going to start our reading in Romans chapter 6, and I'll read down through verse number 14. We'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. And I will start with some questions this evening, or the questions that we have and see how we did with that. Let's begin reading together in Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth. And you could read this very carefully in the King James. The ETHs give the secret. He liveth or perpetually liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Father, help us tonight as we come to this wonderful sixth chapter. Here, beginning in 6 and 7 and 8, and when we come again to 12 and 13 and 14, we find the totality of where each of us that are believers in Christ are tonight. Living in the sanctified life, a life of service to you. Help us to see as we begin to move away from just the 
moment of salvation and into every moment of our sanctified living. There must be progress. It is what Paul is going to drive us to by the time we get to chapter 8. There must be progress. Help us to understand the importance of this as believers in Jesus Christ. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel is not, oh, excuse me, is not good news unless you understand what it's saving you from. That's essentially what we've talked about in chapters 1 through 5. How many of you could tell me each of the chapters and what we've talked about to this point? I do this, by the way, if you were to come and sit in my office or I were to come to your house and we did a study of Romans. I make every single one of them, each of those young men, go through and tell me, all right, what have we talked about so far? So what have we talked about so far? In chapter 1, we talked about... You guys are really giving me the love tonight on Valentine's Day. I feel it. Sin. Yes. We divided the chapter into two, and we said that he introduces the subject, the gospel, in the first 17 verses. But verses 18 through 32, he introduces us to the universal problem of sin. In chapter 2, he deals with the personal problem that each of us has with sin. We noted in that message that the first half of the chapter deals with our moral conceit, the idea that we have this this absolute, or excuse me, our moral conscience. We have this absolute sense of right and wrong. Whenever you say to someone, it is wrong to do that, you are admitting, Paul says, that you know there is a wrong. Whether we all agree on the level of wrong, you are admitting there is a right and a wrong. Thus, you have a moral conscience. And the latter half of that chapter, we said, The moral conceit comes in when we think that we can somehow earn favor with God through our religion. He says you are not a Jew outwardly, but he closes chapter 2 by saying you are a Jew inwardly. We got to chapter 3 and we talked about what? Justification. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not just justification, but the idea of salvation. And salvation, Paul introduces us to this concept of justification. Right? He introduces it in chapter 3. He talks about the imputation or the reckoning, the accounting of righteousness in God's plan of justification in chapter 4. And then he tells us the implication. And I gave us one word, and of course you can't sum up a whole chapter in one word, but essentially to introduce justification, it takes God's grace. That's chapter 3. It's by grace. In chapter 4, the word that comes up over and over and over is the word faith. And so how does he impute righteousness, the righteousness of Christ? Abraham is our picture. It's by faith. Chapter 5, there's a change. There's a change in perspective. There's a change in possibilities. There's a change in our position. All of those things change because of the moment of salvation. Well, now we come to chapter 6, and he says, what shall we say then? All right, what are we talking about? You ever had a teacher that does that? You ever have a professor, maybe, if you went to college, that said, okay, young people, what are we talking about today? That's essentially what Paul is doing here. He's saying, okay, we've established the good news as to why it's good news. Now he's going to tell us, what does that good news mean for the rest of your life? Right? Why didn't God just rapture you the moment you got saved? Anybody want to venture a guess on that? Go ahead, Heather. 
to do his work, to do his will, to shine his light. Yes? Someone else? To be a witness. Absolutely. Right? You can't be a light that's hid. You can't put a bushel over it. You, you have to let your light shine before men, Jesus said. The reason he doesn't save us and then says, all right, I'm done, let's go, is because nobody would tell the next generation there would no be, be no demonstration of what true eternal life looks like lived out here on this earth. And that's what chapter 6 is going to begin to unfold. All right? Uh, poor John, I'm not even close to my outline. John, I haven't said one word that's on it yet, have I? <clears throat> what we're going to talk about tonight is a theological concept, 6, 7, and 8, and it's called sanctification. We understand sanctification in three realms, if you will. We've just technically, in salvation, talked about sanctification that was a moment in time, right? The point of sanctification, at the moment of it. What we're going to begin talking about in 6, 7, and 8 is something called progressive sanctification. And so the title is Progressing Sanctification. That's what I title this whole three chapters within the book of Romans for my personal study. It is the process of salvation that leads to the progressing of that sanctification. Once I've trusted in Jesus Christ and the change has taken effect in chapter 5 instantaneously, there is then going to be a change that happens throughout the rest of my life. I'm going to be progressing towards something. It is within that context of the progression of sanctification that we are introduced to three minor concepts. And I take it this way. This is my outline. This is not. I don't think Paul was sitting down and saying, I think I'm going to write about this. This is how I read chapter 6. He gives us the warrior's mentality. It is the idea of the warrior. That's the actual title of the message tonight. When we get to chapter 7... We're going to look next, Sunday, or next Wednesday night at the idea of the war, right? He explains to us here in chapter 6 what we have to ready ourselves for and how we actually go out and fight. In chapter 7, he's going to show us what the battlefield looks like. And even the great apostle Paul does what? He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? I mean, you kind of get the sense that Paul feels bad about how lousy he is sometimes. By the way, if Paul feels lousy, there's probably days that you and I feel lousy. And so he's told, he tells us how to be a good warrior, what the war is like, and then we get to one of the best chapters in all of the Bible, chapter 8. It's what winning looks like. Amen. And so when you set up these three chapters, at least in that sense, you understand it better. I drew the analogy, and, and when I went through this with Zach not long ago, he said, did you know the word instrument means, and, and we read it tonight, and it, we'll read it a little bit more about being an instrument, that the instrument here literally means a weapon of warfare? And I told him, no, I didn't. So he actually taught me something. I said, I've looked at that word, but I didn't do a deep dive into the word instruments. And so I'm glad that it accidentally, I mean, it actually, that's what I meant to say, actually lines up with what we're studying tonight. So as we come to this this evening, I want to understand or have you understand that Paul turns our attention to the life that is ours in Jesus Christ. It is the justified state of salvation. It's what we are supposed to do. I want you to understand our life. And that's what it's about, understanding our life. The first 14 verses that we read tonight, it is, if you will, the drill instructor 
probably a lot nicer than some drill instructors. If you want to know more about that, you can ask Scott. He was a drill instructor, what it's like to actually be a drill instructor. But the point is, this is the drill instructor that's saying to the soldier, the warrior who's come to the battlefield, he's saying, look, here's the things you got to do. Here's what you need to understand. I asked him the questions tonight, a couple things, and we'll deal, deal with these at this time tonight. How many answered the questions or at least saw them this afternoon? Vaguely familiar. How many of you understand I send out questions? There you go. There, that's it. That may be easier. I asked the first question this way. What is, the, what is one of the central thoughts that Paul tries to convey, especially in verses 1 through 9? I would be intrigued to hear what you came up with. Go ahead. That's right. Great. That's a good. That's certainly one thing he's trying to convey. Grace doesn't give us a license to sin. What other things? What other do you think general concept that he's trying to convey to us? Do life. Oh, new life. Absolutely. We're going to deal with that in our letter A. What did you say, Edward? Knowing. Knowing. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. Paul says, no, knowing, knowing, no. He kind of gets the idea of uh, a little bit like a dad talking to his son, say, look, son, before I hand you the keys to the car and you take off driving, I want you to know something. And, and the nervous dad with the nervous mom says, I, I, I want you to know something. And just before they hit the road, one more thing, I just want you to know something. That's the idea that Paul is addressing here. You've been saved, but you've got to understand something. There, there has to be a recognition in your mind. By the way, the modern church, the modern church movement This is absent from them. They don't know the things that we're going over tonight because they're just given pablum. They're they're given nothing that actually helps or benefits their life at all. The second question that I ask as it pertains to these first few verses through verse 14, what does it mean in chapter 6 and verse 11 to reckon yourselves dead dead to sin? Excuse me. What did you come up with? Or if you didn't have a chance, what do you think that means? To reckon yourself dead to sin. To account it, all right? Settle it in your mind. Add up the evidence, good. Here's the way I look at it. I'm dead! To reckon yourself dead is to just say, I'm dead! Whenever you're tempted to sin, and I've tried to teach, and I will continue to try to teach my boys this, especially as they grow into teenage boys, and there's other things that will assault their lives and their minds. Just tell yourself when you want to sin, I'm dead. And I told him, because if you forget that, I promise you, when you get back home that night, you'll be dead. Right? I mean, all kidding aside, that's what Paul is saying here. You're already dead. You're dead to sin. One of the greatest verses in all of the Bible is 6 and verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. If you literally walk around thinking, I'm dead, then you will not do sin. The problem is we start thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm only half dead. Maybe I'm almost dead. Maybe I'm not really dead at all to those sins. All right, we'll save the rest of them when we get to the verse number 18 and following in the message tonight. As we understand our life that is given to us, this is the process, or excuse me, the progressing of our sanctification. 
The warrior understands what he or she is set out to do. As we understand these verses then, the warrior must know how to fight. He or she must know who to fight. He or she must know what they are fighting for. Paul uses three words that bring us to a full understanding in these passages. They are the words know, the words reckon, and the word yield. He begins chapter 6 giving us an understanding that letter A, we are a new person. I have always, I I never went through basic training. My work for the government did not require basic training. It required some training, but not basic training. I have always wondered what it was like. How many of you served in the military and went through basic training? Real high. (laughs) Thank you. And put your hands down. And thank you for your service, obviously. But when you walked into basic training, you know, when you got off the bus, I, my dad tells me stories about when he was stationed out at Fort Leonard Woods. It's the only time that he ever had a cup of coffee, right? We, by the way, used to think that Leonard Wood was like one name. It's Leonard Wood. We drove past it this last fall when we were on vacation in Missouri. But he says the only time he had coffee because it was so cold when he was in basic training that the only thing warm on the line was coffee. And so he got it and held it in his hands. And when it was getting too cold in the cup, he just poured it on his hands because he was cold. You know what? You don't get to do as a soldier in basic training. Make up your own mind. The point of basic training is to train you basically to follow orders, to do as you're told. The great statement that I've heard from many a friend that's been a Marine has said, when you answer a drill instructor this question, when they say jump, you ask how high on the way up, right? You've already left the ground because you've been told to jump, but you just need to figure out how high you're supposed to jump. What Paul is addressing here is that you, friend, are a new person in Jesus Christ. It is foreign to you now to live like you used to live. Two words to know from these verses, and it is that the words, I think, are immerse and infuse, or immersion and infusion. You say, well, I don't know if I see those words. We see those words. He tells us that we are baptized into Jesus Christ in verse number 3. That word baptizo literally means to plunge underneath or to put under. We are literally put under Christ. We are baptized into his death. We are plunged into his death when we ask Jesus Christ to save us. And the way in which we live after salvation is beneath that death. Not above that death, but beneath that death. Plunged, immersed into that very crucifixion death. Paul uses this word baptizo. It means to immerse, to plunge beneath, to plunge within. We are plunged into Christ's death. The true Christian is dead to sin. This is the wonderful truth of our identification with Jesus Christ. Not only did Jesus Christ die for us, but we died with him when we ask him to save us. We place ourselves literally on the cross with him. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. 
When the Spirit immerses us, places us into the body of Jesus Christ, we are buried with Jesus Christ, and we are also raised in the newness of life. The old nature is still there, but it has been robbed of its mastery by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would later write to the Corinthians, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Kill them, because they're already dead. We died with Christ And everything that belongs to that old life is plunged beneath His death, His cross. The second word I said that applies is the word infusion. The idea of likeness or walking in the newness of life that we're told at the end of verse number 4 and the likeness of His resurrection at the end of verse number 5, these words teach us that the life of Jesus Christ is literally infused into us. It becomes a part of us because we are in Him. The obvious statement then is for the warrior in verse 7. If we are in fact dead, then we are freed from the penalty of that sin. If you are dead to the sin, you are freed from the sin. Our old life is dead. We are new creatures, a new person in Jesus Christ. The answer to the problem of sin is not simply determination. It's not becoming more disciplined. It's not about being reformed or better reformation. It's not about better rules and legislation. There's no human endeavor that can help us. Victory in the Christian life as a new person comes through crucifixion and resurrection alone. That's what Paul has just told us. It's not through turning over a new leaf. And so all of this has to do with sanctification from the moment of salvation. What he's done in chapter 6 is you've been saved, so what? The first so what is you've got to understand the life that you have. And understanding the life you have means you're a new person in Jesus Christ. In verses 8 through 11, we find we have a new power. It's not just that we are a new person. We now have a new power. Verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion, authority, power over him. If it doesn't have any more power over him and we are immersed and infused with who he is in his death and in his resurrection, it has no more power over us. Now you might say, well, I'm still afraid of death. May I suggest to you the believer ought not be. It doesn't mean that the whole process of dying does not bring dread upon us. It can, it does, and it will. But the depths of our soul do not need to despair because death doesn't have dominion. I have life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the promise of the Word of God. If you believe the creation of the world is real, and you believe everything from Genesis to the Gospels is real, and everything about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is real, and everything to the end of the book of Revelation is real, then believe for real that the person who has gone from this world with faith in Jesus Christ is no longer in that body, but is present with the Lord. Because that's what the Bible says. We have a new power. It is an interesting statement because he says that Jesus died once, but he lives. And the word he uses is liveth. 
He liveth every day, you could say, unto God. What a truth of victory and power that we don't have to live worried about death. We just have to live wondering and rejoicing in the life that we have. The warrior needs to know where our strength comes from. The warrior also needs to know what our strength can accomplish. He says we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord at the end of verse number 11. This is what we're reckoning. We're accounting that this is the new power of our life. The power before was the power of death. That's all the law could do was present to us the power of coming short, falling short of his glory. But salvation solved that problem, and it's no longer the power of death. It's now the power of life, resurrection life, we could say. Sadly, many Christians still serve sin, even though their slavery to sin has been broken by our Savior Jesus Christ. When we read Romans chapter 5, we discover that Christ died for our sins. We receive Him into our hearts, but we fail to take up the words and the mandate given in Romans chapter 6. If we do then, if we take up what he's saying here, take on the new person, take on the new power, if we understand that is now our life, then, then and only then do we discover the glorious freedom and liberty that is actually ours through the power of resurrection life. Paul here is preparing us. Paul here, I think, is pleading with us to exercise this new power that God's Holy Spirit has set within us. We're going to come to that in chapter 8. Reading 6, 7, and 8, it really is recommended that you read all three chapters together because they're so interdependent. And I'm breaking them down to take us one by one, exegetically through them so that we understand it. But what he's talking about here is what we receive in the Holy Spirit of God. He really enhances the teaching in the Holy Spirit when we get to chapter 8. But simply to say, Paul is pleading with us, you have this new power within you, you have this new direction within you, act upon that, use that enabling power. The old nature can no longer reign within us, he says in verse 12, because the power of that kingdom has been broken in Christ. The third thing we find is we serve a new purpose. This is all part of the warrior's mentality. This is the preparation, if you will, for the battle that is ahead. He said, look, you've got to understand you're a new person. Once you understand you're a new person, you have to understand you have a new enablement. You have a new power. Not a superpower. You have a divine power. Let her see you serve a new purpose. Our purpose is no longer to serve sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We are not to make our lives. We are not to use our physical lives, our members of our body, he literally says, as weapons of war against God. That's what it means, instruments. Have you ever viewed your life as a weapon of warfare for Almighty God? That's what you are. Your entire existence after salvation is a weapon 
of warfare. It is a warrior, right? It's why we say that uh, the Marines are the first ones in or the, the SEAL teams are the tip of the spear. All of these things we say about our modern day true warriors within our military service branches. This is the Christian life. You are on the front line. You're an instrument. Well, I don't know if I want to just be known as a weapon. Well, God doesn't just see you as a weapon, but that's what you in fact are. That's what Paul is addressing. Look, don't yield your members as weapons against God in unrighteousness. Rather, look at your life as an opportunity to be a weapon for good. An instrument of righteousness unto God, he says. The instruments here literally have a militaristic term. God is saying, don't let your life become an instrument to unrighteousness or unholy ends. This is the simple mission of the believer in Jesus Christ. This is now our purpose. If believers truly reckon themselves dead to sin, then they will prove their faith by yielding themselves to God and to God alone. This, it, this is step three in the process of getting victory over the old nature, we might say, the flesh. We recognize we're a new person. We recognize we have a new power. We recognize, but by those two things, we must serve a new purpose. There's something different that we must be. The beginning of verse 12 is very strict. It's, it's stern almost in nature. Let not. Don't do it. And sadly, so many Christians do not approach their daily life with that thought or ambition. They just say, well, let me do whatever I want, man. And the answer is, no, 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 you're an instrument. You've been saved for a purpose. It is not enough to know this wonderful doctrine of sanctification or even to reckon upon it. We must take the steps of yielding our members, our bodies as useful instruments for God. Have you ever seen your testimony that way? How do your co-workers know you? Well, he is just an angry person. She is just a worry wart. Is that really? By the way, some of you don't know that reference of a worry wart. That is from Patch the Pirate. It's a classic. Anyway, that was free. That's what we are. We just worry all the time. Sanctification progressing, as we've noted in 6, 7, and 8, towards a life of godliness includes us understanding our life in Christ. We are good warriors in verses 1 through 14 if we understand we are a new person, have a new power, and serve a new purpose. From this understanding comes our responsibility in number two, utilizing our liberty. You've been given liberty now because you're saved. You know you had no liberty before you were saved? You were damned, doomed, and dead. You say, well, thanks. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I mean, that's just the truth. Thankfully, we've been saved by the love, mercy, and grace of God. We continue reading in verse number 15 to understand this utilization, if you will, of our liberty. He says, what then? This is the second time he said that. What shall we say then? He opens the chapter. But here he says, what then? Okay, so now that we understand these things, what do we do with these things? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Again, God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye 
obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. You can say, by the way, right next to verse number 17, what he's talking about there is salvation. You believed the faith that I talked about in chapters 3, 4, and 5. You believed from the heart, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, you became the servants, the slaves of righteousness. Now, does that sound very promising? Hey, man, I got a deal for you. I'm going to take you from being a slave of sin and I'm going to make you a slave under righteousness. You're welcome. Does that sound great? And the answer is, if you know God, it's fantastic. Who would you rather be a slave to? Death? Hell and the grave, or God the creator, the redeemer and savior of this world? And the answer is, I would choose the latter every single time. And that's what Paul's addressing here. But by the way, the point he makes is, it's the first time you get to choose. Before salvation, you've got no choice. You can't serve God as a dead person when you're dead. And that's what he's going to say. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. Paul says it better than I ever will. He says in verse 19, I speak after the manner of men. Because of the infirmity of your flesh. He says, look, I'm going to talk to you very plainly here. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity. By the way, the compounding problem of sin is that it compounds the problems in your life. One sin leads to two sins and two to four. And on the list goes. He says, iniquity and iniquity. Even so now, stop and yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. One of the, another great verse in the Bible. Hey, listen, if you were only able to serve sin, guess what you were free from doing? Serving righteousness. But now that you're saved and you have a choice, you can choose not to keep living in that doomed and damned way. You can live in a delightful way before Almighty God. He goes on and he says this in verse 21, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye now are ashamed? What, what benefit was it to be a sinner? For the end of those things is death, separation from God. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto, you have the product of life lived righteously unto holiness, the very nature of God, and the end or the purpose, the goal of everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, that's a verse on salvation. no. And yes, but no. Contextually, it's a verse on sanctification, as we'll see this evening. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to salvation. But within the context, he's talking about what choice will you make? Living in the old wages of death or living in the righteousness of God? We find then choosing your sides shows your allegiance. The overall goal, overall goal of sanctification is to become a useful instrument of righteousness, weapon for God. God gives us liberty to do this. It is the exercise of our free will to love, serve, and please God that doesn't just prove our sanctification, but it proves the power and the purpose of God in giving us salvation. Why did He save us? So that we could live like this, not like our old selves. That's why he saved us. And that's the whole progress in the mind of the believer towards sanctification. I don't have to live like the old life, but more importantly, I don't want to anymore. 
brings three things and we'll be done. The final three points here. First, in the utilization of our liberty, a choice is now ours. That's what verses 15 through 18 tell us. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. It's a simple choice. Which one will you make? Which one do you want? You and I now have the ability to please God. We have the choice to please God. If you look tomorrow at the first opportunity to sin... If you look tonight at the first opportunity that's presented to you to be selfish and pig-headed and, and chauvinistic and whatever other words we could throw in there, men uh, or ladies, if we could be close-minded and whatever other things we could say, the first opportunity to sin, and you know you're being confronted with an opportunity to sin, if you stopped and said out loud, which one do I want to choose? Do you think any of us would finish that sentence by saying, well, I'd like to just serve the devil? But we don't ever stop to ask the question. That's what Paul does. He makes us ask the question. You now have a choice. Before salvation, you had no choice. Well, I think before people are saved, they can do some really good things, Pastor. I'm sure they can, but they can't please God. They can't actually accomplish the righteousness of God. You say, well, God sets up kings and, and takes down kings, puts in presidents and takes down presidents. He can use them for his glory. Oh, yes, he can use anybody for his good and his glory. What I'm suggesting is you can't before salvation. The point of chapter 6 is now that you've been saved, you can You can make the choice to say, I'm not going to live in that old sinful life, and I'm going to start eliminating old garbage from that old life and live differently. Letter B, it's not just that a choice is now ours in verses 15 through 18, but a challenge is now offered to us. Paul decides to challenge us. By the way, that's what you do with a warrior. Somebody that's getting ready to go out on the battlefield. You get them ready. It's like those goofy guys at the football game, right? They bang their heads into each other. Let's do it! And they go out there and the first guy breaks his leg and they're like, oh, this is gross. I don't know if I want my kid playing this sport. Well, they were banging their heads together. It's probably a bad idea to begin with. Right? This is what he's doing. He's laying a challenge out here. I I can sense, as a former coach, I can sense what Paul is doing here very clearly. He's saying to us, what kind of fruit do you want? Death and damnation. I mean, those are his actual words, right? He says, iniquity unto iniquity. Do you want to have an unclean life? Do you want to have the fruit that leads ultimately to death in verse 21? Things that you were ashamed of? I mean, would any of us as believers, if we honestly were talking one-on-one, sit down and say, yeah, I, I think that's what I want? I don't think any of us would say that. Yet choice after choice after choice, we fail the challenge Time and time again. Paul says, when you were the servants of sin, in verse 20, you were free from righteousness. He doesn't write that like it's a good thing. Some people read that and go, huh, that's right, I was. No, that's a bad thing. The challenge here is your life is to be in the righteousness of Christ. When he's writing to the Ephesians, he said that very thing. It's in righteousness and true holiness in Ephesians chapter 4. Just before he says that in Ephesians 4, he says, but you've not so learned Christ. The people that were living unclean 
in an unholy way. This is exactly what he's saying here to them. Sanctification has to mean something to you. And he's offering a challenge to us, which letter C leads to a charge that is outlined. In verses 19 through 22, he gives us that challenge, preparing us for the battlefield. I would argue he's preparing us for chapter 7, knowing that the translators added the chapters and the verses. He's going to carry the thought through, but he's preparing us for the battlefield. But in chapter 6 and verse 23, he lays down a charge. You say, well, all of this has to do with choice. That's right. That's why the choice is now ours. The challenge is now offered. And letter C, a charge is being outlined for us. We know this verse as the hinge and the central truth of the Romans road. Am I not right, Edward? I mean, this is the hinge. Because in this verse, you see what life before salvation was like and what life after salvation was like. And yet, when we talk about the Romans road, the way in which you lead somebody to faith in Jesus Christ, beginning in chapter 3 and verses 10 and 12 and in 23, and then you take him to Romans 5 and verse 8, and then you come back here to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and then you take him to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 and verse 13, and when you lead them through the road, you finish with, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But this is the hinge. And so often we think then in chapter 6 that it's talking about salvation. And there's certainly an application to it, but within its biblical context. And Bible verses always come within their biblical context. He is talking here about the charge to you who have been saved. The wages of sin, it's death. If you want to keep making the choice and not answering the challenge, then you're going to have some charges laid against you by your Heavenly Father. The wages of your sin is separation. You say, well, I can't lose my salvation. That is right. He's going to talk about that in these three chapters. Yes, you cannot lose your salvation. Hallelujah. But you can certainly lose your fellowship. I know a lot of Christians that have fallen out of church and faded away into obscurity because they decided they just wanted to keep living in the wages of their sin, which is separation. No amount of praying will change someone if they have no desire to change. God, if they're a child of God, will just intersect their life. That's what God must do. What He charges for us to, or what He charges us with is, is this. As you've accepted the gift, live the eternal life. The gift of God is, he's basically saying to us, here is not a challenge anymore. Here's what you should be charged with. Somebody should be able to come up and look at your life and say, the gift of God that you say you've received equals, that's what is means in a mathematical term, equals eternal life. And it's evident in your life. Is it? The warrior mindset is this very thing. The progress in closing tonight of your sanctification depends upon your willingness to choose to live the life of Jesus Christ. 